America. All righty. Good to see everybody. Monday morning, Monday morning. Usually I preach on Fridays, but this week it's, it's uh, flipped a little bit. And I know I stand up here and tell you, hey man, chapels, this, this, and this. And, but I would say that starting this week, uh, we have a series of uh, chapels over the next two weeks that are going to be as good as it's ever been in five, six years. Uh, tomorrow, we have uh, one of the great leaders in the country from Chicago, Illinois coming. His name is Pastor Al Toledo. He, he pastors what's called the Chicago Tabernacle. He, um, he's an incredible leader. He was a top draft choice of the New York Yankees. He was the top pitcher um, in the country back in high school and uh, played with all kinds of major league guys. The Lord called him into the ministry and not to play pro baseball for the Yankees. And it's an unbelievable story. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. It's a huge church in New York. Uh, so that is his church. That's his father-in-law, Jim Cimbala. And his wife, Chrissy, uh, has a story that has been told uh, all over the world uh, through books um, about her life and testimony. But Al and Chrissy lead this church of thousands. And they have tremendous reach across the country. They just launched a new church, the Philadelphia Tabernacle in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. But this guy travels and teaches on what's called the DNA of leadership to corporations, churches. It is, it's spectacular. Um, I would not miss tomorrow for nothing. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, we have one of the great preachers in the country, Ken Johnson. And I'm not hyping, I'm not blowing smoke here. It's Ken Johnson um, is coming from Tulsa. Ken was one of the uh, most prolific uh, drug uh, uh, dealers. He was high and flipped a car and it tore his leg off. And he's had to come back in life, went to prison, filled with hate, was radically saved. He told his story here a year and a half ago on Zoom uh, for a chapel and just blew the place apart during the whole crazy COVID year. Ken is coming for two days on Wednesday and Thursday. And then Friday is going to be Will Jones. I've got to be down with my friend William McDowell in uh, Orlando on Friday. And then, then next week on Monday, Tuesday is uh, Glenn Berto. And he is, again, one of the countries. You guys, your generation may not know who Glenn is. Uh, Glenn uh, was a world-class All-American football player radically crazy saved and then was has led um, I'm gonna say he's personally probably led half a million people to the Lord in his life um, and I'm not exaggerating the guy is just a crazy thing he died a year ago of a heart attack and was brought back I think like 10 times he's a living miracle he's one of the great preachers he'll be here Monday Tuesday and then we get we're gonna have honor the great 100-year anniversary of the death of William Seymour. We have Dr. Daniels here on Wednesday. Uh, then we have Dr. Darnell Williams preaching on Thursday. And then we have Martha Tennyson on Friday. <clears throat> Just don't miss chapel this next two weeks. Uh, you guys are doing great. All the faculty and staff are just saying 
This is the comeback year of chapel after COVID just, just took so much of our ethos away. Um, this has just been a magnificent year. So take your Bibles, go to Matthew 16, uh, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to look at my little Bible. I leaned over and asked my wife, hey, do you have one of those delicious little black uh, throat lozenges again uh, that you gave me on Friday? And she left them at home, of all things. She goes, you want one? I said, yeah, they taste horrid, but they actually do work. Um, so hopefully my cough is good. It says here, I think it's on the screen right now. Let's walk through this. Matthew 16, uh, 13 through 23. I know you've heard the passage. I'm going to make you see some things, hopefully see some things in this text um, that relate to your life quickly and will take you past the familiarity. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So Jesus was doing this quick survey. He wasn't having a low self-esteem moment. He wasn't in need of some feedback. Um, he wasn't feeling low about his self-esteem and needed uh, a pump up. He wasn't really curious what the man on the street was thinking of him. He wasn't interested in applause. He wasn't interested in, in all of his social clout. That's not what's happening when Jesus says, uh, who do the people say? So you guys are out there, the disciples, you're out there among the streets. You're mingling among the crowds. Hey, what are people kind of saying about me? Now you would think this is what people would do today in this day and age if they're trying to figure out if there's any momentum to their life. Now let's contextualize this. This is nine months uh, before the uh, crucifixion of Christ. So we're in the third year of his public ministry. He's nine months out from his death. And so there was great enunciation and then great popularity. And then it starts to narrow. And here is that narrowing season where Jesus is still public, but things are growing in their intensity and his time to be delivered is coming near. And he knows what's about to happen. He knows where it's going to happen. He knows how he's going to die and he knows how long he'll be in the grave. And he predicts it all here in this verse. So Jesus is well aware of where he is at in his journey. So he said to his disciples, what are people saying about me out on the streets? What are you hearing about me out there? Um, and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, man, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, if you're going to be on a short list, that's a good list. You could say Jesus had been highly successful. This is the list of influence to be named among prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah, um, John the Baptist. Of course, John <coughs> had passed. And so Jesus was in this list, this Hall of Fame list of individuals of tremendous influence. But verse 15 is where Jesus was really headed with this. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What is Jesus after? He's not after getting the pulse of the streets. He wanted to find out if after nearly two and a half years of intimacy with me, is your opinion of me different than what? the typical social understanding of Jesus is? 
has time with me, has nearness <coughs> to me, created a different level of revelation about who I am than what simply, <coughs> excuse me, the average religious person and observer on the street has surmised. So the same question is true today. Is what you think about Jesus different than what the average person in America thinks about Jesus? Is what they say about Jesus different than what you say about Jesus? And how does that difference happen? And how is that difference measured? Who do you say that I am? Not what do they say, what do you say? You've had an up-close and personal relationship with me. Has that interaction and that access created a depth and a breadth of revelation and confession? And I understand that Christianity is a constant tension between confession and conduct. We're trying to figure out, is this a faith that's simply based on confession or is this a faith that really is examined and measured by conduct? That's always been the struggle of the age. Jesus is talking about a confession here, a revelation. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, which was atypical. This was a man who loved to talk, loved to hear his voice. And he was quick and he was, from his gut, he, he answered. And the rest of the disciples may have cringed, may have held their breath. What's he going to say this time? And he says... You are the Christ, or the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You can't get this from research and reading. This understanding, this light that goes on in the inner man is not from anything that can be understood in the outer life. It says here, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So if this was a game show um, and it was Wheel of Fortune or it was Jeopardy, um, that answer was bing, 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 right, buzzers, lights, everybody applauding. He nailed it. Peter nailed it. He got the exact answer, perfectly articulated he got an A-plus on the oral exam. Thou art the Christ. You are the anointed one, the sent one. Son of the living God. Bing, 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 bing. People are like, look at that. <coughs> this guy got it right. For It wasn't his first right answer, but he was somewhat, okay, boss. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm putting this experimental green throat lozenge of which I have no idea what's going in my mouth. It's reaching the back of my throat, my nose. Not bad. Colette, is that yours or Sean or? Neely, thank you, Neely. thought maybe it's one of the athletes and one of the guys that would, anybody ever handed you a throat lozenge and it's covered in fuzz uh, because it was half sucked and then put back in the pocket and then they give it to you? My mom used to give me some of those like that. Okay, so far so good. 
This is the year of the cough drop, the year of the throat lozenge. But this thing is big and it's slick, so I may spit it out right on you while I'm preaching here in the front row, so we'll try to, try to catch it in midair. Simon Barjona, you have nailed the answer. And I would say even getting an A on the oral exam of the kingdom requires tremendous courage and revelation, openness of the heart, because the Father brought the revelation to Christ, but he, was, he didn't even hesitate in his answer. Next verse. I also say to you that you are Peter, and you know the famous word study here uh, between rock and pebble. Um, and upon this rock, I'll build my church, this confession, not this personality, but this confession is the rock. The confession of Christ, Jesus as the Christ. We have, through history, deemed the personality of Peter, and we assigned him as the first pope uh, that is the great uh, oracle and the great one of revelation, almost a guru status from this passage of scripture. And Peter is the pebble. He's the, he's the little shaving of the larger confession. He's no different than you and I. Jesus is saying upon this that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. No doubt Peter was significant. He was a cornerstone, much like the Apostle Paul. He was, for whatever reason, he was in the right place saying the right thing at the right time, and the, Lord, the Lord's plan for Peter was unfolding. Um, but then he goes on to tell Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, this is a conversation with Peter in front of the disciples, but it's for all the disciples. And this set of keys is not solely the possession of Peter's in this moment. It is, it is the offering to every one of us. So he said, I'm gonna give you some keys. Keys unlock things. Keys open up doors. Keys take you into the next room, into the next dimension. Keys are very critical that God is going to equip you with knowing how to unfold and implement the kingdom of God. I'll give you a set of keys. Now, we live different. We live in the lanyard age. We don't live in the keychain age. The keychain was a big deal, man, back when I was growing up. And every company had somebody with a big wad of keys on their hip pocket. Uh, usually the head custodian, the plant manager, does anybody remember the guy that walked around with about 50 keys hanging off his hip? That person was typically very arrogant because everybody had to go through them <coughs> to get anywhere. I can name them, but I choose not to. Uh, in my life, I had a few of those big hip, big, huge key people. And if I needed to go somewhere, they would have to walk with you, and then they would get to the door, and they'd do the little slinky chain out, they'd do the key like that, shaboom, it pop back into the holster there, and they just wanted the whole world to know that you're going nowhere apart from me and my little slinky keychain. I'm in charge. When Jesus told the disciples in his conversation with Peter that you have the keys, 
I think the same thing happened to Peter that happens to the custodian with the big wad of keys. Then I'll give you the keys. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So this gap or this, this, this chasm between activity in heaven and earth, uh, Jesus is helping us understand how these things are bridged. That your ministry, your work on this earth is going to bridge heaven's activity to earth and earth's activity to heaven. It's a powerful, powerful promise. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. There still was nine more months until the crucifixion. And Jesus was, was trying to uh, govern and, uh, and, and calculate this moment. He, he knew that it wasn't, the right, it wasn't the right time quite yet. And he was trying to keep all of the social reaction to him at bay until the appropriate time would come. So next verse, if you will. It says here, uh, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And be raised up on the third day. Jesus knew. He was telling his disciples, this is how it's going to unfold. But sometimes, psychologically, emotionally, when there's such chaos and noise, we can't hear nor can we remember. Same thing's happening right now. Christians are scared, even though all of this is laid out in the Bible for us. Scripture names these behaviors that are going on in our day and age, really gives exhaustive lists of all of the human interaction that we will see as lovelessness and lawlessness unfolds. And yet people act as though they didn't know it was coming. So the disciples in many ways are in this space. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised up on the third day. He predicted it nine months before it happened. Down to the day of his resurrection. The, the period that he would be in the tomb or be in the grave. Verse 22, back to the guy with the big wad of keys on his hip, Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. What a stupid thing to say to God. Hey, forbid yourself. Forbid yourself. He puts his arm around Jesus and goes for a walk. Puts him in a little headlock. Hey, Jesus, let's go for a walk. Hey, man, all this talk of being delivered up to chief priests, scribes, elders, killed, raised up on the third day. Peter didn't hear that piece. He simply took Jesus aside and said, man, forbid yourself. God forbid this should happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. What is going on in this conversation? And why does it matter? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Now, 
When you study the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Jesus in his rebuke of the religious, when this metastasized religion took this journey of the Pharisees who started out sincere, but it metastasized into self-righteousness and exclusion through Phariseeism. Jesus let him have it between the eyes in Matthew 23. Do you know what he said to the Pharisees? He called them sons of the devil. You sons of the devil. He called Peter the devil. He, called, he told the Pharisees, you're a stumbling block to others. He told Peter, you're a stumbling block to me personally. Jesus says this to Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. Get thee behind me, Satan. Just absorb the potency of that statement against the backdrop of just going bing, 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 bing. You got it right, man. You got an A on the oral exam. Thou art the Christ, son of the living God. You have to get the confession right, friends. Because confession is attached to our belief, our conviction, our faith. You got to get the confession right. So what is Peter failing at that gets, he gets called Satan? Can you imagine Jesus calling you Satan? On the heels of calling you, man, you're a rock. Uh, you're going to, the confession out of your mouth, I'm going to build my whole church. And now he calls him Satan. So, okay, real quick, we just got about five minutes here. Get a musician up here if we can. Is there a piano player? Be great if they're around somewhere. Look at that coming one of my favorite keyboard players in the world is now ascending from the balcony. Seriously. Seriously, this guy is a gift to this university. I love you, buddy. That's fantastic. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Pharisees were sons of the devil, stumbling block to others. Peter has become a stumbling block to Christ himself. And is Satan, not son of, sons of. Why is Jesus saying this to Peter? After he got an A plus on the oral exam, the written exam. Because when Peter took Jesus aside, he was being dishonest with Jesus. God forbid that this shall happen to you. Peter was not worried about necessarily what was about to happen to Jesus. He was worried about what would happen to the next guy up after Jesus died, which was him. If they do this to you, Jesus, they're going to come looking for me because you've made me an executive right hand. I got this big wad of keys on my hip here. So Peter wasn't protecting Jesus. He was protecting himself. Peter went into self-preservation because if Jesus died a violent death, they certainly would go after Peter because his confession brought him into authority in the kingdom and usefulness in the kingdom. Now watch this. When Jesus said that the written exam is about confession, but the lab, the lab, is about real life. And you got an A on the oral exam here about Jesus, 
But when that confession was tested, when your conduct is tested and you have to die as a martyr, Peter said, I want to be a spokesperson for the kingdom. I just don't want to die for it. And when Jesus said, Peter, you're willing to keep me from my destiny? You are no more aligned with the DNA of the devil as when you are trying to keep another person from reaching their godly assignment and purpose. I want to save my tail so bad, Jesus, that I'm going to keep you from your assignment in this life. Because of our association, if you die, they're going to look for me next. And I have no intention of dying for this thing called the kingdom of God. I didn't know that that's what I was signing up for when I got the answer right with my confession. That my conduct would be tested. My conviction would be tested on the streets. And would I be willing to die for the sake of Christ? Now, I just want to close by telling you a fast story. In the mix of all this madness, the last 15 years of school shootings, one happened up in Roseburg, Oregon, about 12, 13 years ago, that's been totally forgotten. Somebody walked into a junior college in Oregon, a gunman, and lined up all the students who were college students. And they walked up and said, are you a Christian? No. Are you a Christian? Y yes. Poof, executed them. Read the story. Are you a Christian? Now, how'd you like to be this Christian? Who just saw this Christian die because of confession. Excuse me. This guy said, no, I'm not a Christian. Got shot in the leg. If they said they were a Christian, they were shot in the head. Next one, Christian. And this millennial, this millennial said, yes. Life's over. No, leg, no leg. Another one said, watching this unfold. And you've got 10 seconds to make your pick, to make your choice. It's one of the most startling stories I've ever been exposed to. But here's what I'm saying. I think, Dr. Tennyson, that this was the first case in American history in which people on U.S. soil died for their faith. Some people have walked into churches and killed people for their association. But I think this is the first time in U.S. history that a Christian died for their confession on the spot and was executed for being a Christian. And it wasn't somebody my age, it was somebody your age. So we talk about, oh, the good old days and all this. I don't know anybody my age in American soil that's ever died for confessing Christ. But it happened to your age group, to college kids. And when I saw that, I said, there's great hope for our country and for the church when college students would be willing to die for their confession of faith. Now, I would never wish that test upon my life, your life, or my grandchildren. 
but that test has come to our shores. Here's my closing point. We have to get the confession right. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. We have to understand the, the, the dynamic of being handed the keys because of that confession. But then from that point forward, what we've signed up for is not to keep Christ's assignment on this earth, my brother and sister's assignment, knowing that I have to pay a price for your success. Peter said, if I do this, if I let you die, then that may impact my life. But I'm willing to pay whatever cost for the kingdom of Christ to go forward. That's an A on the laboratory side, not the written exam side. All right, we're done. Let's stand. It's 11 Let's stand together, friends. It's a crazy, crazy heavy story in Scripture. But it's one of the top 100 stories that have impacted my life, impacted my thinking, impacted my faith on a daily basis. I don't want to just say, hey, Jesus, you are the Christ, Son, living God, bing, 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 get the keys, be the leader. And I've come to understand in this life what that actually means. That all of my confession will be tested by conduct and by a willingness to help others. In this case, Peter helping Jesus fulfill his assignment, not keeping him from the cross. I don't want to keep you from what God has for your life. And I don't want you to keep me knowing that it's going to cost me something for you to fulfill your purpose. It will cost you something for me to fulfill mine. So, Father, we just ask across this building today on this Monday, Father, let this story sit for a lifetime inside of us, God. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus, to be pursuing the Father as Jeff Dio so powerfully explained to us at the beginning of this year that the Father then reveals that Jesus was the anointed sent one, singular, not among, but always above. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved, none. None among Islam, none among Buddhism, none among New Age, no other name by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Father, I pray that as Jerusalem draws near, Lord, as the cross draws near in Christ's life and then was the calling on our life to take up our cross and follow you, Lord Jesus. There would be elements of humiliation, elements of betrayal, elements of death and pain that would mark my Christian life forever as I take up my cross. Help me to deny myself, Lord. Not save myself, God. <clears throat> and Lord, the kind of Christians, Lord, in that classroom in Oregon that gave their life because they did not deny Christ in this life. God, I can't imagine that moment. But thank you for the example of those college kids showing this nation and the church how to live their all. In Jesus' name, bless this school, bless this house. Give us an unbelievable week 
In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see everybody back tomorrow. Al Toledo right here. Get your friends out of bed. It's going to be a great, great day. God bless. Thank you.